0: CEO of Climate Neutral, Industry Efforts to Go Green or Achieve carb, Climate Neutral rather, Status. Mr. Whitman, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks, David. It's great to be here. Uh,
0: you're very much welcome. Mr. Whitman's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, collectively termed subnationals, numerous academic institutions, states, cities, and local governments, companies, NGOs, and other entities across the country have pledged to become climate neutral. Generally, this means their greenhouse gas emissions or carbon footprint are completely offset by consuming or funding renewable energy resources and or funding reforestation or other carbon sequestration efforts. Though the healthcare benefits of reducing carbon emissions are crystal clear, as I've noted previously via this podcast, healthcare providers and federal industry regulators are climate nihilists. They have in some ignored this issue despite the fact After the food industry, healthcare is the largest emitter of carbon dioxide equivalents at over 650 million metric tons annually or approximately 10% of the U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. As I've noted previously, per research published in One four years ago, Mount Sinai research concluded health harm caused by the healthcare industry's carbon emissions causes upwards of 98,000 deaths per year just in the U.S. In addition, the U.S. Healthcare industry substantially lags behind other prominent U.S. industries in publicly reporting their carbon emissions. Two weeks ago, however, Kaiser Permanente, the U.S.'s largest integrated nonprofit healthcare provider, announced it had achieved carbon neutral status, meaning the organization had erased its 800,000-ton carbon footprint, or 800,000 tons emitted annually. As Kaiser noted in its 9/14 press release, "quote unquote," as physicians climate change is absolutely in our lane. Kaiser is the first healthcare system in the U.S. to achieve this status. And listeners may recall I interviewed Kaiser's Kathy Gerwig regarding her organization's climate-neutral efforts in May of 2019. With me again to discuss corporate efforts to go green is climate-neutral CEO Austin Whitman. So Austin, with that as background, let me begin by asking you if you could provide a brief overview of your organization.
1: Yeah, well, great, David. I love that background because what you've done is, I think, shown a spotlight on something that needs to change. And we hope it will change in the sense that climate is such an overarching challenge that for anyone not to see it as their challenge um, is really a mistake. And one of the encouraging signs that I've seen in the last few years is that more and more people are taking note of the challenge and really picking it up as something that they've got to think about in their, in their day-to-day climate neutral. uh, We started a year and a half ago, really with a basic sort of, um, with a basic problem in mind, which is that, you know, a consumer pick up any consumer on the street and ask them what they've been told to do uh, if they want to help reverse or address climate change. And people will probably tell you, Well, I know that I I should stop eating meat and I know that I should drive an electric car and I know that I should fly less and maybe some other things, too. Uh, And and one of the interesting things is if you if you think about those three, you know, are you eating meat is pretty obvious. When you pick up a fork, you can say, uh, you know, I'm eating a steak or I'm eating Uh a banana. Um, Are you driving an electric car is pretty obvious. And are you flying is pretty obvious as well. And, and unfortunately those, you know, those three things only address a small chunk of the total carbon that each of us is responsible for. And that's because all the things, the objects that we rely on day to day are the product of a fossil fuel intensive production chain or value chain, which we call, you know, kind of a carbon trail that stretches around the world. And so the best uh, the best idea we could come up with to deal with this is to create a label just like a USDA organic label that would indicate to a consumer the climate impacts of something that they buy. So we can sort of turn the money that people spend on stuff uh, when it's not obvious, like, a you know, a steak versus a banana uh, when it's not obvious what the climate impacts of something that they buy are, we can. We can put a label on it that says you know did the company that made that thing measure its carbon emissions the carbon that they were responsible for from producing that thing and bringing it to the customer and then did they take steps to offset that carbon uh offset also known as remove or you know purchase a carbon credit and we can get into those technical details at some point if you want Uh, And then, are they working on plans to reduce their carbon emissions? So this is sort of the the basic designation that we came up with, and the label launched officially in June of last year. We recruited about 140 companies to get certified, which was going to happen from January to April of this year. Uh, With the pandemic, I I feared the worst, but actually turned out to be the best. We ended up getting 150 companies certified by the end of it. one of the things we learned from that was, yes, there's a pandemic, but if anything, it has sort of reinforced the idea that there's a shared vulnerability across all of us that we really need to, you know, we really need to to, to get together and, and figure out in the case of COVID, it's obvious it's a health, public health one. In the case of climate, it's obvious it's an environmental one. So we certified 150 brands uh, and we're now in the midst of recruiting more companies to get certified for 2020. Um, I guess the final detail I would add would be we're, a, we're structured as a nonprofit and our mission is simply to decrease global carbon emissions uh, and to engage consumers and brands to make that happen.
0: Thank you. So, in reducing uh, carbon emissions, I, I did see on your website you do note uh, the amount of carbon not being admitted, and what amount was that for these 150 uh, entities?
1: Yeah, we got about 200,000 tons of carbon that was being cleaned up, if you will, um, from from those companies. Okay. Uh, To put that into perspective, 200,000 tons is about equivalent to what 43,000 cars would emit in a given year.
0: Okay. Tell me, give me some sense of uh, the industries uh, from which these uh, 150 companies operate, in which they operate.
1: Yeah, we, we've got a mix of industries, uh, but with a heavy bias toward uh, companies that make physical products and companies that have brands that are really, uh, you know, well regarded by by their consumers. And by that, I mean um, their brands like uh, Clean Canteen or Allbirds. Um, Allbirds makes shoes. Clean Canteen makes water bottles that are reusable. Um, Kickstarter is a software company, but also has a very significant brand presence. So we're basically looking for brands that uh, the consumers respond to uh, with with kind of a, a sense of you know I, either um, you know loyalty or desire or uh, any sort of uh, you, you know preference more than they would respond to other uh, purchases that they make that just feel less significant. And I guess in the, in the language of marketing, it's, you know, what we call high interest consumer products, a product where somebody takes a lot of interest in, in the decision that they're making. Um, So I'm sure we, we we can all think of examples from our day-to-day lives about what those kinds of brands look like. But we've also seen in the course of talking to companies that, uh the appeal and the opportunity here goes far beyond just those high interest consumer brands so I guess I would think of that as more of a beachhead than than the full story've we've, we've talked to a bunch of um, firms including a very large healthcare consulting firm actually um, and you know business services professional services uh, le- business leaders have um, have been equally interested in trying to figure out the impacts of their operations because all the clients that they work with are now paying attention to climate.
0: Thank you. So relative to the consumer and being certified, this is the, they're able to better vote their values, as is the phrase. And I will say when I interviewed Kathy Gerwig, uh, she noted that this they found a positive upside uh, with their patients knowing that the healthcare provider was not polluting the air they breathe, and they also saw advantages in recruiting and retention clinicians who prefer to work for a provider that isn't um, uh, dependent on fossil fuels and driving, say, asthma rates up as a as a result. Let's get into some of the specifics, and since I mentioned Kaiser, in their press release two weeks ago, they noted that they had achieved Scope 1 through Scope 3 mm-hmm. uh, carbon-neutral status. This gets somewhat complicated, I realize, but it would be helpful if you could, say, step us through at some level uh, what it means or what have you done uh, to obtain a carbon neutral status.
1: Yeah, so we can unpack scope one to three, what that means, uh, and that might help folks get their heads around what a commitment like that actually means. So scope one, scope two, and scope three, uh, that's it. There are only three scopes. So people don't have to worry about, well, what's scope four and what's scope five? Um, And, you know, scope one, scope two and scope three simply refers to the source of the emissions that are attached to a company. So with scope one, we're talking about emission sources that are directly uh, generally fossil fuels directly combusted on site or within company property a, a, um, let's just use Kaiser as the kind of the the central example here. So if Kaiser has a fleet of shuttle buses that they're driving around, the gasoline from those shuttle buses would be counted as scope one. If they have a natural gas fired furnace in one of their buildings, the emissions from that natural gas that's burned would be considered scope one. Scope two, for all intents and purposes, is electricity usage. So all the electricity, to power, the machinery and ICUs and operating rooms would be considered scope two. And the difference there is that the energy is used within Kaiser properties, but the emissions are happening at the power plant, which is some number of miles away. Scope three is all the emissions that are happening outside of those direct corporate facilities and where those emissions are created in the service of, of, of offering products and services to the to kaiser so an example of that would be the crates of uh, ppe that show up and all the manufacturing emissions associated with ppe that's used by kaiser healthcare workers so kaiser is basically procuring you know equipment and the emissions associated with that equipment are considered scope three uh, along with a whole bunch of other things, there are 15 subcategories of scope three that if folks want to tune into a later podcast. I'm sure we could spend a full half hour getting into that. But uh, but but that's you know that's a fundamentally kind of um, you know, uh, I guess comprehensive description of what scope one, two, and three is. And a really important question that people are asking more and more is when somebody says carbon neutral, do they mean scope one, scope two, and or scope three? And I think we saw. Uh, a good period of time, and by good I don't mean you know positive, but sort of a, a significant period of time where people were, were making a lot of carbon neutrality claims on the basis of just scope one and scope two. Well, for a lot of companies that make physical products, a lot of the companies that we work with, for example, scope three emissions tends to account for more than 90% of their total footprint. So if you're just looking at scope one and two, you're just looking at something that's 10% or maybe less of the total total emissions that you're responsible for. If you did not exist, those scope three emissions would not be happening. So you should be considering yourself accountable for that, which is what Kaiser actually did.
0: Right. right. So this is generally, I understand, as supply chain uh, emissions. And uh, you mentioned uh, that or uh, in, in your explanation, Kaiser noted in their press release, scope three, as an example, corporate travel was uh-huh. uh, one way they tried to explain. Uh, that, let uh-huh. me ask you as a follow-up, and this is the question that always comes up uh, immediately relative to um, can uh, companies do this or why can not companies not do this, and that is this, the the question of cost. Uh-huh. Let's leave aside unaccounted for costs such as improved population health or a more sustainable climate. Um, what's the current state of play relative to uh, cost-benefit in going uh, carbon-neutral. I will note, and you see this statistic cited, frequently solar solar production costs have dropped this decade 82%. So we do know there's been a massive decline in renewable energy uh, consumption costs. But mm-hmm. again, what's the cost, uh, additional cost or cost savings associated?
1: Yeah, so cost savings is a bit complicated because the question of whether somebody can save costs by adding efficiency to their operations is it's so specific to what that company does, does correct and uh there are plenty I, I used to work in the energy efficiency industry and there are plenty of energy efficiency investments that would pay back after a couple of years and all those would be considered should be considered low-hanging fruit especially for, you know, folks like, you know, hospital systems that have a lot of real estate. Uh, However, you know, energy efficiency is notoriously difficult in the hospitals because of all the critical systems that need to be run, and so people are always worried about sacrificing performance, but a bit of a digression. Um, The cost, so the cost question, I think let's assume that – you know that, that addressing climate change is going to have a cost above and beyond what people are spending. And in the course of spit of, of addressing those costs, we're going to find some opportunities to make money or to save costs. Uh, but I think like the real, the real thing that we should be looking at right now is if there is absolutely no return on investment other than fixing the global climate, which one could argue is a massively NPV positive, Uh, investment because of the trillions of dollars of climate risk that exists, then the question is for what, for a company, what is the, what is the cost uh, to achieve that global benefit? And something that we found is that surprisingly the numbers are actually a lot less than people tend to think. Uh, And I'll throw some sort of rule of thumb numbers out there um, that for a company that has a million dollars of revenues, On average, the amount of carbon to generate those million dollars of revenues would be around 400 tons. So 400 tons per million dollars of revenues. Um, Sometimes it's closer to 100 or 200 if a company has more of a services business. And sometimes it's a little bit higher than that if a company's business is really carbon intensive. But if you have 400 tons per million dollars of revenues and you have a carbon price of six dollars a ton you're looking at twenty four hundred dollars per million dollars of revenues not a lot of money in the grand scheme right Mm -hmm. um just around a quarter of a percent of revenues and so then you have to ask yourself well why aren't more companies doing this and that's a question that we've asked and it's a question that we're trying to get more companies to ask because uh you know, this is this feels like a really, really pretty affordable insurance policy against uh, things that might be happening in the future.
0: Okay, thank you. And again, this this question is, would be related to companies who have substantial plant investments uh, or um, uh, bricks and mortar footprint. And that is, there is beginning we're beginning to see increasing amount of literature that discusses the extent to which companies absent converting uh, could find themselves left with, if they remain dependent on fossil fuels and that becomes uh, increasingly less affordable compared to renewables, they could be left with uh, depreciated or stranded assets. Uh, So to the extent that in your conversations, does that that issue come up relative to motivation? Again, I would imagine that conversation would just be limited to, say, manufacturing companies.
1: I think that's right. I mean and, and power generation companies, there's a lot of talk in the, you know, state utility realm of whether as we force utilities to purchase or to procure more of their electric electricity from renewable sources, are we forcing you know the early retirement of generating plants, which leads to stranded assets, which then becomes a huge burden on ratepayers? We're not certifying utilities and I think if you look at the companies that we work with, um the uh, the choices that they make in their value chain um, are, you know, in, in most cases pretty variable because it's a question of whether you you know choose one shipper versus another shipper. Uh, if another shipper is 50 percent less carbon intensive, then it seems like a better choice. Not a whole lot of stranded asset implication for the for the company, um, and the same goes on up the on up the supply chain. So um it's not really a a major a major driver for the folks that we work with i think what, what we try to do is to get them to think about these decisions as you know stuff that can be achievable in the short term the medium term and the long term uh with the more complex stuff that happens in the in the long term and then more of these sort of you know decision or p- procurement switching decisions um being totally achievable in the medium term.
0: Okay thank you and and this this is the obvious question uh of this set and that is and again, I realize this depends upon, uh, in part, the type of company, but also to their geographic uh, location or locations. And that is, how are they doing this? Uh, what alternative resources are they are they tapping, and how available are those? You know, the the rap you hear on renewables is the, the build out of them it hasn't been sufficient such that it can oftentimes be no more than peaking power. Um, so therefore, it's not as reliable. Uh, a source of power, but but that, that point aside, just generally, and I, I, again, I realize it's varying, but generally how are, how are people, what, what resources are they tapping alternatively?
1: Uh, And you're speaking specifically about uh, electricity procurement?
0: Yeah, let's leave it, let's leave it to that. Yes. Let's, let's leave Mm -hmm. it at that. How they're, how they're keeping their lights on.
1: Uh, Yeah. I mean, there's a variety of ways. I think, you know, um, there's sort of direct and indirect ways to procure renewable energy, uh, if you're looking specifically at what we would think of as scope two, electricity use. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it really runs across the board for um, large technology companies that have massive data centers. Uh, you know, they're, they're signing, they're some, in some cases, investing in renewable uh, power plants. In other cases, they're signing power purchase agreements uh, with wind farms and what have you. Um, for smaller companies, you know the same types of things are possible, but more often we see uh, trading of what's called a renewable energy certificate, which is the kind of the environmental attribute of a megawatt hour of green power. And that effectively allows you to sort of fund the green, the green energy benefits of a renewable energy project without having to be uh, a direct owner in the plant uh, in the power plant. And so it creates a little bit more of a market opportunity, especially for folks who are are, are relatively smaller.
0: Mm -hmm. And by way of procuring renewable, uh, and I did get into this in part with, uh, again, Kathy Gerg with Kaiser, and that is they, um, because of their size, obviously, uh, Mm -hmm. they're able to uh, obtain financing for their effort by selling debt. Uh, this is sometimes called uh, green bonds or green financing. Do you get into this aspect of 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 this endeavor at all
1: uh not in my current role no not not at climate neutral
0: okay I was going to ask to what extent uh are you finding green financing uh increasingly common?
1: Yeah, I heard a great example this morning actually of European financial institutions that offer somewhere between a 20 and 30 basis point discount for commodity providers that are commodity traders rather that are, um, trading commodities that have lower greenhouse gas intensity, pretty fascinating merger of you know financial markets and, and physical, you know, com- commodity markets. And, and so I think that, you know, instruments like green bonds, uh, like financing discounts for major financial institutions uh, can really help drive money toward lower carbon alternatives, right. whether that's a you know whether that's a power plant or whether it's a you know a ton of aluminum.
0: okay, okay. My last question again, this is a policy conference and that is you're aware the the House uh, majority uh, staff of the uh, climate crisis uh, committee wrote a lengthy report, June thirtieth. The, uh, the minority staff of the Senate uh, Companion Select Committee, or, uh, or, excuse me, Special Committee on the Climate Crisis wrote their report uh, somewhat less lengthy. That was out about a month ago now. Um, both reports made numerous recommendations, um, but those aside, um, or feel free to reference those, there is some expectation the next Congress, other than issuing reports passing, say, resolutions, for example, the House and the Green New Deal, might actually take up real legislation. What would be your recommendation, specifically as it relates to encouraging how more companies can be encouraged to work towards uh, being certified carbon neutral?
1: Yeah, this is a great question. I mean, the the real issue is how do we get uh, action coming out of federal other legislative or regulatory policy uh that's going to have an impact in the near term as Mm -hmm. opposed to the longer term and i think we don't have a
0: longer term right yes
1: that's exactly right And (laughs) and i think you know when people sort of press me on well shouldn't we just be lobbying for better policy i mean absolutely right we should absolutely be voting and lobbying and and everything else but People have to realize that regardless of whether you get, you know, 51 to 49 in the court of of a climate change bill, there's still a lot of politics involved in getting something like that passed. Mm -hmm. And uh, and during that process, um, there's a lot of there are a lot of compromises that are made. And one of the compromises um, is often lower ambition in the near term and a longer a longer runway. And the last time we were at this same spot, we basically were looking at a 10 year runway. Uh, and that would have been 2020 before, you know, the 2010 vintage legislation would have actually had a, had a major impact. And, um, and so I think, you know, what, what I would say is if, if there are easy wins, like requiring companies to report, to calculate and report their carbon emissions, uh, immediately uh, or within a year of, mm-hmm. of, of implementation, that would be that would be a good step forward. Um, I think starting to sketch out the outlines of a of a national scope, nationally scoped carbon market uh, would be tremendous, you know, picking up on some of the lessons that have been learned in California. Um, you know, so, so getting in very quickly to market design um, you know getting into getting into emissions reporting as i said um starting to look at some you know some national targets that are synced up with those of the paris agreement right in other words a resolution to get back in the paris agreement which is a great signaling device to show people that this is the direction that you know overall american policy is going to going to head in so i think along with the along with the thorny issues of you know whether this is a cap and trade or a, or a, or a tax um or you know any number of the sort of r- real nuts and bolts of a policy i think there's some opportunities to to do some things um establishing uh you know a, gre- a federal green bank is one of those um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or at least encouraging states to to incur to uh to set up green banks to getting back to your question about green bonds so those are all you know to me pretty low-hanging fruit um and uh and can provide a lot of clarity and and create incentives for direct action, um, short of you know, holding everybody up for the design of the Holy Grail, which is you know aggressive and near term climate policy.
0: All right. Let me I, I, I have to ask this and this'll I promise my final question. Since I mentioned Kaiser, my question is how how credible do you think this idea is? It seems strange to me that again, noting the size of the healthcare industry's footprint, how and why it is that the Medicare program would not, under its conditions of participation, so you have to meet the conditions to participate in the Medicare program, to require hospitals, uh, under the conditions of participation, submit plans that uh, detail how that particular provider will achieve, uh, at, by a certain date, uh, a carbon-neutral mm-hmm. certification. Uh, again, to make it under the Medicare program a requirement under uh, uh, Certificate of Participation or Conditions, rather, of Participation. Does that sound reasonable at all to you? I've talked about this idea and and I I really don't get very far with it. To you, does that sound reasonable?
1: Uh, I'm not a healthcare policy expert, so I'm a little hesitant to say yes, but I'm going to say yes because I I like what you're getting at and that is something akin to tying you know, tying um, funding to f- funding for roads to to certain you know, things that the federal government wants to see. Right. So. So, I mean, I say, why not? Right. You, you kind of early on pointed out that climate change is in our lane. Right. The health healthcare mm-hmm. lane. So if if um, if there's an opportunity to tie these two issues together, um, then and you can do it in a way that really links up um, you know uh participation in a critical federal program to a very simple thing which is uh setting a target and and doing some information disclosure and then working toward a target that's science based um then yeah do it i mean there seems there's sort of no downside and um and all upside there one of the one of the communities that we've been working with a little bit is the international public health community um and one of our funders has a long history in that uh, and i've also been talking to a couple large international ngos um that work in public health and there's this realization that you know all of our work on public health is sort of moot if we don't deal with climate change right. because all the people that we're helping where we're helping avoid cholera um you know if they have to migrate a thousand miles to stay near a water source, that's pretty problematic and, and sort of is at odds with that, any of the work that they're doing. So, yeah, I mean, I think the more we can draw these connections together, and this is certainly something that the, the House report did, was you know, making these connections between uh, health and, and, the, and the environmental issue, then, um, then do it. So uh, how, do you, how, do you, how do you get that passed?
0: <laughs> well, good question. In fact, I was going to say when uh, I bring this conversation or subject up next session, uh, I might be calling you for some support. But <laughs> but with that, Austin, oh. we're at our time. Um, so I'll say thank you for this overview, and I wish your organization uh, uh, equal success, if not greater success uh, this coming year. Maybe the 150 goes to 300.
1: Yeah, well, I I hope we'll get there, or at least to 250 and uh, companies that is. And I really appreciate the conversation and the you know the multidisciplinary way you're looking at this. It's uh, it's it's really important. So thanks.
0: Thank you again. You have just heard another edition of the healthcare policy podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archived program, please visit our website thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.